Hi, I'm Mike. Hey, I'm Kelsey. We're into telling you stories. Sometimes funny, sometimes awkward, sometimes creepy or sad, but who knows? Every month it's different, but no matter what, you'll be asking yourself. Okay, WTF. Welcome, friends. Mike! Kelsey! <laughs> hey. Uh, hey for me and my cat, the Hello, poopy cat. one. Yeah. The poopy cat? Yep. Hi, you. Um, Just forewarning, there might be little, uh, oh, there's a spider. Ew. There might also be little um, cat noises in the back of this presentation today because I have both in the mm. room with me Um, because in this household, we have to divide and conquer. Yes. <laughs> um, I have the two cats and my husband has the dog. So there might be cats like screaming to get out, but they won't. They will be with me. So it's perfect. Anyway, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. I had a great day today uh, at the point that we're recording. <laughs> so <laughs> very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, we found a swimming hole nearby and oh. um for myself and my dog, uh, we had a blast. So that sounds wonderful. Um, it was so nice. It was so good. But as always, I'm stoked to record with you. Um, Ditto. Heard that you have a good one. A little worried. I have a. I have an. I have an interesting <laughs> one, for sure. It's. Uh, <laughs> it's very different. And anyone that okay. I told this to has been like, "Yes, absolutely." interesting okay and i have no clue all i know is that yours is not the same as mine uh mine is just something that the vibe check the vibe check (laughs) oh god oh the vibe check is interesting it's definitely something that has been it was a part of my life early on unknowingly like i didn't know like where it originated from and it it's just funky, I guess. And there's been like a resurgence. So I was like, I got to fall into this one. Okay. Um, so I hope that it brings you joy. <laughs> I know it will. It always does. Shall we start? We shall. Okay. Episode six. Here we go. I um, I know. Lots of great resources, including books this time. I did not read all these books. I just got like a lot of research from them. I know. I got a YouTube reference here. We're going to watch the video at the end. Uh, Just a heads up. So if you are listening, you may want to visit our presentation and get the link in case or watch. uh, Yeah, watch watch the video. I will give you some insight into what's playing, but something from Tufi Films, uh, Wikipedia, the New York Times, Charles Kovacs, Ancient Myths and and Legends, Gordon Lindsay Campbell's The Oxford Handbook of Animals in Classical Thought and Life, Patricia Akimi, Shakespeare and the Cultivation of Difference, Race and Conduct in the Early Modern World, John Clark, The Medieval Horse and Its Equipment. John Burr, (laughs) Pleasures of the Imagination, English Culture in the 18th Century, Uh, The Georgian Group Journal, 
Jane Brooks, Hobby Horses, Then and Now, a comparative study, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Material Culture and Sedition, 1688 to 1760, Treacherous Objects and Secret Places. What the hell is going on? And uh, Louise Penfold and Julie Halewood, The Therapeutic Potential of Creative Play with Toy Horses. So... I don't what do you think's happening here? <laughs> so obviously there's horses involved, but there's like some weird spy craft. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> okay, so this this time around, this month's story for me is something that I've definitely been falling down a lot of holes on. And I think it's because I've mostly been receiving a lot of targeted, in case you missed it, on social media focused on yeah. this, which is funny to me because it again, like social media doesn't know me as a child and I definitely don't like I mean I hope it doesn't but like I don't like actively seek this out so I'm like what about my search history is or like my engagement is targeting me with this but anyway (laughs) um the algorithm is funny and it's fascinating but I'd like you I'd invite you to wander with me through the quarters of time here because we're gonna really unveil the fascinating history of hobby horses Okay. Um, and do you know what that is? Uh, no. Perfect. No. Um, and kind of the unique, I guess, world of hobby horse competitions. So is this like going... dressage? Like what? what is see, see. Um, it's it's a journey. It's a journey here. So, uh, going back to what I was saying before, right? Like when I was growing up, we had a hobby horse. I don't know why. I don't know whose it was. Like maybe it was my grandma's. She had like all sorts of like funky stuff, but I remember it distinctly. It, and I associate it with her. So I wonder if it was, I also associate like Lincoln logs with her and she had like all sorts of like older toys, I guess, but I know that it was in our house. So I'm like, I need to just ask my parents and I totally forgot, but mom, dad, if you're listening, why did we have a hobby horse? Anyway, and I should ask them too if we have any pictures of me or my brother. Oh with my it. god, this would be brother. perfect for the social. Brother, I know, brother. Let me know if you're listening to this. If we have photos, um, I associate it also with being really little. Um, but I remember it was brown and it was kind of like a fluffyish head, and it was on a long stick. Just the head is on the stick. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking now. about. Okay. Yeah, I'm exactly. Um, So it's important that I probably just describe what hobby horses are before we kind of start this journey. So it really basically is like a horse head, not a real one. It's made out of fabric of some sort. And it's on this like long skinny pole stick thing. And a rider, I guess, (laughs) will like run around mounted over the stick uh, while like keeping their hips erect, I guess. It's kind of like a jockey on a real horse. So yeah. Do you have a picture painted here? I do. I perfect. I hear, and I'm also hearing like the coconuts from Monty Python Holy Grail as you run behind. Like, <laughs> yes, if you're going to engage in a hobby horse, you need the sound association. Yeah. I actually on the screen here have a photo on the right of kind of what mine looked like, but mine was like a deep chocolate brown, and this one's kind of more of a tan. Okay. But it's basically what mine looked like otherwise. And then on the left, there's kind of like a variation of a hobby horse. And it's one of those like plastic horses on springs that like you can sit on and it's the full body of a horse and you really sit on it. Like you're kind of like an actual horse. I did not have one of those, but they're kind of 
they are not the same thing, but that one's called like a horse rocker, but there's, mm. they pop up in different ways, these two different types throughout time. So our story will commence in the annals of antiquity, <laughs> where ritual and symbol were dancing hand in hand. Charles Kovac, who wrote that book, Ancient Myths and Legends, and the Oxford Handbook of Animals in Classical Thought and Life, provided kind of a very vivid picture of ancient cultures that engaged in essentially animal mimicry. There's been a lot of different archaeological findings from mostly Greece and Rome and really beyond that showcase the early origins of hobby horses, which at the time were both ritualistic and symbolic to the people. So we've got on the screen here a vase, a jug with handles of like this person um, dressed as a bird. Uh, and then there's a depiction of like a young lad or young individual uh, with a hobby horse mounted, mounting the hobby horse. Um, and then below uh, some more images of different types of horses that people would like do this ritualistic play with so over time the hobby horse evolved from kind of this sacred ritualism to what people believe today is really a tool of youthful exploration or self-expression and there is a book that was written Shakespeare and the Cultivation of Difference it really looks at how even William Shakespeare captured the hobby horses transition from more like ritualism into more of a playful prop, like in theatrics and things like that. So there's manuscripts and visual art from as far back as the medieval period that kind of like give you little glimpses of documentation of um, children galloping through meadows with these imaginative companions. And like, there's even a book uh, really early on that was in circa like, 1150, 1450, common era, and the medieval horse and its equipment, uh, that book really like delves into that time. So yeah. let's fast forward a bit here, more into like the 18th century. This is when the hobby horse like really took off into more of this idea of mainstream organized competitions, I guess. So a lot of these competitions really found their home or like where they were welcomed in town fairs and festivals. So there was a guy named John Brewer who like hardcore researched this history through people's diaries and um, discovered that people were really like the, those who competed in these kind of fairs and festivals took super pride in their creations. Um, they considered them handmade works of art. And so kind of just like as they were reveling, reveling in this imagination, imaginative, uh, imaginative play, they were also kind of showcasing this like craft, I guess, or this art mm. that they created. And uh, apparently some are really, really intricate. So the, the one I had on the screen initially is really basic. And the one that I had growing up was very, very basic. But some of them got really intense. So um, on the screen, we've got kind of like different depictions of kids, mostly like young people playing with these hobby horses over time. Obviously, there's no photographs from then. So most of these are illustrations. There's one photograph, but um, most of them are illustrations depicting what that would have been like or what had been described or, you know, anyway. So now uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries, we're kind of this 
we've hit this massive resurgence of interest in hobby horses. It's kind of really gripped young and adolescent girls and not really just girls, but honestly, a lot of young girls uh, (laughs) worldwide. But a lot of this is like super, super focused in like Finland. Um, This is where this is really popular. Um, But it's a stirred up rebirth of hobby horses, (laughs) a hardcore revival, if you will. But digital platforms and social media really united this like initially very underground hobby horse enthusiast community which was happening globally uh, and they kind of found each other from virtual they moved to in-person competitions it was initially like in like these like local isolated areas all over the world and then now there's like international competitions and all sorts of things um and it centers around kind of this like wonky whimsical creation so actually some of the images here on the screen uh, are different types of hobby horses there's a couple here that were really like depictions of real horse or like what people determined were like real horse heads like skeletons and mounted them on sticks a lot of like more of like i think run fair type vibe um yeah, yeah. but That's very beautiful. whimsical i know they're kind of like really interesting they, they almost look like they're getting married they have like veils yeah. and things yeah. it's really yeah. funny set in front of a castle but the, yeah some of them are really whimsical and even still today many are i do still find that a lot of them look in this like resurgence more like the one that i had probably less worn and all that but yeah just really interesting so there's a lot of conversations in this community about breaking stereotypes. So um, hobby horse competitions really do challenge traditional gender norms and kind of redefine this idea of athleticism. So in the sport like jockeying, um, which is typically dominated by men, hobby horse competitions are really empowering more so young women to showcase their skills, their strength, and really their determination in this sport, quote unquote. And it's it's also just with the underground movement now more mainstream uh, social media, it's inspired this sense of camaraderie among these different participants that have also opened up conversations about gender equality and inclusivity within the realm of sports. Many do not consider this like to be an actual sport, like not the um, hobby horse enthusiasts themselves, but like right. people outside yeah. of the community. It's just very, very interesting, Um, but their influence really extends into pop culture. There's a lot of literary references, art depictions, and even therapeutic applications for kind of this endurance of these imaginative mammals. Are they mammals? They're mammals, yeah. Yeah. So one of the most remarkable aspects of modern hobby horse competitions is kind of this fascinating creativity displayed by these participants. So... It's not, a lot of it is centered around the horse, the hobby horse, Um, and many of these folks make these themselves, but it's also, these enthusiasts are choreographing very intricate routines to like lots of different types of music. They jump, they spin, uh, they maneuver these hobby horses all around sort of like these different, just intricate choreographed things. Yeah. And they do design these custom horses. So they give them unique personalities. Um, it's very imaginative. They give them unique appearances, often that reflect their own style. And some might choose like wicked glittery manes and really intricate saddle designs. And um, so really it's each horse is, is essentially a canvas for self-expression. And there are tons, tons and tons and tons of hobby horse accounts now on social media. So you'll have to go check them out. Just type in hobby horse. You'll find I'm them. Gonna, yeah. 
even a happy horse competition they're wild to watch and you can tell that like the riders like when you're watching them are like super invested in the competition itself i have to say like it's weird it's weird to watch like i was like okay wtf is this it actually reminds me a lot of track and field like when i was explaining it to my husband i was like you know before you watch this this is my vibe on this it's like it reminds me of track and field with a with a horse between your legs, like with a, okay. a stick between your legs. Um, but really, it's just like these adolescent girls that are just kind of having fun, and they're just out there, like giving no fucks, imagining, like uh, engaging in this imaginary play. And a lot of participants are like listening to different um, interviews and conversations, and they really just say that they they really get this massive adrenaline rush as they're performing. They consider it a performance and they really meticulously practice for months on end for these competitions. So of course, and actually as with any increasingly popular trend and ones that, you know, this can seem to a lot of outsiders very juvenile for the age Mm -hmm. of these participants. Um, But hobby horse competitions have faced a fair share of challenges and criticisms with skeptics mostly questioning the whole like legitimacy of the sport, dismissing it as like a childish fantasy. But on the other side of the fence, proponents are arguing that it promotes physical activity, creativity, a sense of community, like essentially no harm, no foul here. And it just makes it a valid and valuable endeavor for really people of all ages, because it's not just young girls and adolescents. Like there are adult people also engaging in this, there's different age groups for competition. So, you know, different enthusiasts have unique ways of expressing their passion. And it does definitely seem unusual to some. I find it to be somewhat unusual, but it was also fascinating. But it's really all about fun. And really, I think as I was listening to different people, many of these people were kind of, you know, like, I feel lost or I just like wanted a sense of community yeah. or, um, you know, all of these all of these things and they just wanted to feel creative um like they could express themselves and um also many of them happen to love horses so um, even if they're imaginary so it's just kind of it's just fascinating but there are some aspects of hobby horse competitions and just like hobby horsing that may seem quote-unquote weird to outsiders i'm going to outline a few of those one of them being imaginary obstacle courses so they design and set up these intricate imaginary courses for these horses to navigate. So a lot of them are like jumps, tunnels, and just other types of obstacles um, that can appear kind of quirky. The jumps are really what made me think like, this reminds me of track and field because they will literally like do a hurdle with this like horse on a pole. So it's pretty wild. The customization, like enthusiasts spend a ridiculous amount of time customizing their horses they can be so intricate with their outfits their names they create backstories for them so a lot of this too kind of just reminds me of people like who um engage in all sorts of role-playing type games like it gives it's essentially the same thing in that regard it's very intricate like people will act as though these horses have lived a life and are very much alive Another one is that this is performed in public often. So there are a lot of people who will practice in public, um, like parks or streets. Um, And so to outsiders who are seeing like, you know, like a 14 year old girl on a hobby horse, it might seem a little funky when they're riding around in like 
this imaginary horse in a public setting, but there's a lot of unique obstacles in parks that are helpful for training for these competitions. Dressing up in costume. So people, not always, like I saw some of, in some of the competition videos that I saw, they were wearing regular kind of street clothes, yeah. um, but many will dress up in equestrian themed attire, like freaks, boots, helmets. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, is it just the, uh, the horses, the hobby horses that are all dressed up or do the people like, Oh no. Can go, <laughs> it's like a whole spectrum. This is awesome. Oh yeah. 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 Total spectrum. Like a lot of the ones I was watching were just kind of people in sneakers and jeans. Yeah. Some were wearing like athletic wear and then some were absolutely dressed in like full equine attire. I love it. This is, you know, a true competition. This is an intense competition. People dedicate time, a lot of time to, they train rigorously. And so I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding that, like taking that seriously, I guess, is like the challenge that they're faced mm. with. And also the the online presence and forums, the hobby horse community is very active online. They share videos of performances. They actively discuss techniques with like very much seriousness. And they even participate in virtual competitions. You know, some people are like, huh. How does that work? Um, and then yeah. the age diversity, like I mentioned it before, but it, this spans lots of age groups from young children to adults. And it can often be really unexpected for people to see like, you know, an older adult engaging sure. in this type of play. Yeah. So, and uh, so, yeah, it's really on the screen. I've got like an example of um, one of the hurdles that someone was jumping over with their hobby horse here. Uh, but this person's wearing kind of street clothes, athletic yeah. wear. And at the top, there's, uh, you know, a, a hobby horse store, essentially. Like, I think this was sold at a competition area, but they sell hobby horses. Um, and then there's actually a documentary that came out not that long ago, like several years back called Hobby Horse Revolution that really goes into some of the like intensity of the community. And then it highlights like as with any sport, it's celebrities. Um, so super well-known enthusiasts that are really hot online for st- for this sport. One of them, the person here in the red, uh, red hair, Alisa uh, yeah. Erniomaki, she's often referenced as the Hobby Horse Queen. Uh, so she gained prominence for her, her involvement in popularizing the hobby horse riding experience and competitions. And she was one of the key figures who helped bring attention to this through media coverage, through public events and social media, all of that. There's several others, Mari Paolo, Lassie Kirkulati, Kirkulati uh, and Emmy Penanen. All of them are... Um, really prominent in especially the Finland hobby scene, hobby horse scene, which is where this is very big. It really originated um, in modern day there. So um, yeah, Lassie, I think is his name, is one of the men who kind of has shifted the idea of this girl or woman identifying participants as being uh, dominating the scene, I guess. So he is a well-known male participant. Um, but yeah, it's really, really interesting. And and so I'm going to leave us with just, it's like two and a half minutes and it is the trailer for Hobby Horse Revolution. Ooh. So you can kind of see that. And then hopefully 
people will be interested enough to go download it or buy it or I don't know, just social media stuff. I don't know. So we'll watch this together now. Liikunta, sitten käden taidot kehittyy, kun tekee keppareita yön. Koordinaatio erilaisissa koulutusliikkeissä. Ja Ja no, kyllähän mä siitä aikalaisille ylpeä on, että on tosi siistiä, että ihmiset on silloin aikoinaan inspiroitunut musta ja on niin kuin vähän silleen kehittänyt harrastusta siihen suuntaan, mitä mä oon niin ajatellut, että millä se olisi hienoa olla. Mä haluan vähän niin kuin jakaa omat taitoni joillekin muille ennen kuin mä itse lopetan. Vaikka otetaan vaikka Nelli, niin siinä on jotain, niin kuin missä se on hyvä, mutta se ei vaan itse usko siihen. Ja sitten yritän saada sen näkyviin, että mitä se osaa. Ja sitten se alkaa uskoa siihen. Hidas, Loistavaa, hyvä näin. Tosi moni on sanonut mulle, että omega, mä oikeasti kehityn tässä. Milloin tuut uudelleen? Hyvä. Mitä askeleet on niin liidokkaat? Mä oon vaan treenannut niin paljon. Mun vanhemmat eros 2006, ja mä en oikeastaan muista mitään siitä niin 2006-2011. Mä en niin muista mitään muuta, paitsi kepparit ja sitten roosan jonkun verran. Elämässä on vaikeita ja helppoja hetkiä, ja nämä ei ole ehkä niitä mun helpompia hetkiä tällä hetkellä, mutta niiden yli pitää vaan hypätä. I think what's fascinating to me is just, I mean, like, yes. So I'm going to give a quick overview of what that video is because most people who are listening will not be speaking this language. So I will suggest go and watch the Hobby Horse Revolution trailer. It does have English captions. We should probably transcribe it too. But essentially, it just takes you through um, a variety of different hobby horse enthusiasts, uh, competitors, big names in the hobby horse uh, Finland scene, really just showcasing the work that they put into the showcasing their horses, showcasing the work that they put into these competitions, training and learning, like watching actual horse competitions to learn how to do mm. some of this stuff or like appear like they're on a real horse. It also talked a little bit about a person who found this as essentially an escape during her parents' divorce and finding community to really delve into. And it brought her joy and, and it really just shows, I feel like when I watched it, just like 
it looks like they're having so much fun and like girls, yeah. young girls just being allowed to just have fun is really lovely. Yeah. The shot of them uh, mm-hmm. running through like that Creek in slow yeah. motion. That was really cool. And then yeah. I, absolutely what you were saying earlier about how it's kind of like track and field. Uh, yeah. Girl jumped over. Yeah, yeah, like a massive. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to do that with or without a hobby horse. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah. So it showed some of the competitions, and and also too, just some of like it almost looked like a protest. I wasn't really sure. Like I don't know if people are trying to ban it or something, but there were people lined up on a streetway, and they were just saying respect the hobby horse and like chanting it and using megaphones to say that. So it's just really wild. But when I was initially watching it and I was getting these targeted ads, I was definitely like, okay, WTF is this? Um, But it's really just kind of joyful. Um, So I'm happy for them. Yeah, so totally cool. (laughs) So I hope that you enjoyed my story, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely did. It was giving me, um, do you and your partner watch Bob's Burgers at all? I have watched Bob's Burgers. I have okay. not watched it in years, but yeah. The So uh, my wife and I, mm. uh, we fall asleep to it almost constantly. And Bob's oh Burgers, God. yeah, Bob's Burgers is not sponsoring this show. If they did, no, just they absolutely. I, uh, I'm, I'm Especially cool with if it. they're hobby horse enthusiasts. Hello. Yeah, so their daughter, a there's, there's a, a teenage daughter in the um, – Bob's Burgers universe, Tina. Mm. Um, she there's one episode in season six. I know it's later on. It's like episode 15, 16, or 17. Um, <laughs> where she has an imaginary horse and Ooh. she has to do a competition. Oh uh, <laughs> there you go. It's like very much imaginary, like not with a hobby horse, but like yeah. as if uh, and Paul <laughs> Rudd voices the the horse, which is also Oh man, I love it. Um so I'm going to fall asleep to that tonight because uh, you yeah, uh, like the whole time you were talking about it, I'm like, this is just like Tina and Bob's Burger. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. It just is such a, it's such an interesting thing. You got to definitely, before you watch that with your wife, yeah, who is also one of my very best friends, please yes watch these hobby horse competitions on like tiktok or yeah. instagram there's tons on instagram um i'm sure there's some on tiktok too but oh my gosh yeah and let me know what you think watch some absolutely. of them absolutely. absolutely okay anyway thanks for watching <laughs> yeah it was great i loved it i loved from moment one what was going on yeah you're you're very like inquisitive face when i was like reading off the sources and yeah i was like what is uh, where is this gonna go this is sounding sketchy kelsey yeah um but anyway grace me with your story mike sure 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 i'm gonna give some content warnings um, to begin with it's always good when a story starts with content warnings um uh-oh mine was very like lighthearted today yeah well (laughs) uh yeah mine isn't um okay that's okay so content warning uh we got some war in there uh we got some guns um and some animal cruelty um i will start this by saying uh there are photos of uh 
particular mm-hmm. animal cruelty, and I did not include no, them in my <laughs> slideshow because that's not what I'm about at all. Yeah. Um, uh, animals, in my mind, are often much better than people are. Uh, yeah. So I'm True not that. going to Sweetie. make anyone experience that. Uh, we'll go to my story sources. Got a few things. We got a lot of Australian.gov links. Huh. So we're going to be heading down under. Um, okay. So we, we start with an article about World War One politics and something called repatriation, which I'll get into. And then another article, NewSouthWales.gov.au, about soldier settlement schemes, um, which mm-hmm. all of this is going to be leading into emus. And you're like, what? World War One emus? Also, there's some Great Depression in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know. Uh-oh. Some not great stuff. And then uh, midway down, you see a wikipedia.org, emu war. <laughs> and oh, then uh, no. you to see links about emu war. 6,000 years of, oh, okay. So I thought it was going to say 6,000 years of emu emu war. war. And war I was there? like, oh my God. Yeah, no. End no, that not. war. <laughs> End that war now. Uh, no, that's just more like uh, how long emus have been in Australia for and like, okay. uh, their evolution and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm going to introduce the two main key players first and then go into the conflict. Okay. So we're going to be talking about World War I Australian soldiers returning home, okay. uh, some of the crap they had to deal with, and then I'm going to talk about emus, and then I'm going to talk <laughs> about what happens <laughs> when uh, when when they don't get along? I almost did the uh, real world saying like, "What is it?" I can't remember. Uh, oh, uh, the MTV thing. Yeah, where it's like where people when they come together nice and start, yeah, being and start real. getting real. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'll I'll put that as a subtitle in uh, yeah. oh my God. in the episode description. Uh, I, I feel uh, awful. I'm a terrible millennial for not remembering no, uh, my real is, world stuff. What is life? What is Nothing's life? Uh, you know real. who else was wondering what life was? Good yeah. segue. Uh, World War I soldiers returning yeah. home in Australia. Um, mm. Soldiers returning home from World War I had something called repatriation, uh, which is kind of like our Homestead Act of the 1860s mm. where... Uh, because they fought in the war, mm. the government decided, hey, let's try and do something nice for these people <laughs> and uh, offer up tracts of land uh, that weren't being used. And they could have their own homesteads and farming and stuff like that. But something to keep in mind, especially with regards to World War One and Australia, the way they treated their returning soldiers is mm. kind of similar to how the United States treated the Vietnam veterans who were coming mm-hmm. back. So there was a lot of like animosity, uh, animosity, not a lot of uh, serious applications mm-hmm. of them trying to assist. Uh, mm-hmm. They basically did like the bare minimum and tried to like sweep as much of them under the rug as possible. So not a great start. Uh, these people mm-hmm. fought in a huge war and came back and weren't really taken care of. They came back with uh, PTSD, which wasn't known at the time. They had chill shock. And other people were missing limbs and stuff like that. And the Australian government said, perfect. Uh, We actually need people to be farmers to increase our yields. And 
you guys would be perfect for this, but most of them had no farming experience. They were mm-hmm. just coming back, trying to make some kind of life for themselves after a terrible, terrible experience in trench warfare uh, that was all over Europe. What uh, year is this ish? This was like early. Uh, so returning home would be 1919. Um, okay. Uh, 1915 to 1919. Okay. So re- repatriation in southwestern Australia, there were about 250,000 acres that were split up among mm. the returning veterans. Um, this amounted to about 2,300, oh, sorry, 23,000 farms throughout mm. Australia, but the majority of them were in southwest Australia. And they had only about 10 acres of land per farm mm. or settlement. Um, which if you're growing things like wheat or grain, usually you need a little bit more than 10 acres to be able to mm-hmm. kind of like have your own food and also have food to ship mm-hmm. to the government. So you need areas to subsist just for your own family. And a lot of them were finding it was actually uh, more profitable to just have like fields of wheat everywhere. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the government thought this was a win-win. Soldiers get to learn a new trade. Uh, and get homes and farming, and the government gets a steady supply of wheat or other grains that they can bolster mm-hmm. uh, their own stores with. I uh, already talked about how majority of the soldiers were returning home, and the government mm-hmm. thought they should be fine, but there were a lot of things that were going on, mm-hmm. either beneath the skin or because of missing appendages and other things like that. Uh, on the slideshow, there's just a photo of a bunch of Australian soldiers mm. um, happy to return home. Yeah. Um, Did you, in this research, find anything about, like, the correlation between, I feel like it was it Europe or it was the UK for sure, who used to ship their essentially criminals to Australia and like gave them plots of land was there an intersection of these folks and that this was a little bit before uh so 1700s is when uh majority of uh uh, the the english and other colonies okay okay the the prisoners uh, Mm. uh, to this land that was totally untamed except you know indigenous people all over the place living there beforehand um Okay, so we so have early. no, you're good. And uh, there mm-hmm. on the screen is uh, a broadsheet, which is talking about all the different land that's available, um, mm-hmm. who can get in. Actually, it wasn't even just Australian people. Anyone that fought in World War One mm-hmm. uh, and were allies of Australia, like Canadians, uh, Americans, anyone oh, in the UK, they could come live. Wow. And this was kind of a way to be like, we can bolster our population and we can get more farming mm-hmm. and we can do like all this stuff that they thought would be cool (laughs) ended up not being so cool. (laughs) And um, here we see on the screen uh, a little pamphlet uh, that kind of describes the the Queensland area, which is southwestern Mm -hmm. Australia, different land parcels that are broken up. And uh, you can see a soldier. uh, They're called soldier settlers. Mm. They were working the farms, but it wasn't very... I don't want to say it wasn't very good. It's just that they didn't have the knowledge. And especially mm. in that area of Australia, super arid. It would take a 
someone who had been farming for a long time, like lifetime or generations to be able to be like, I know exactly how to get the soil to do what it needs to do. And said they were and just like, repeatedly. yeah, That's and repeatedly. The wild part. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, regenerating the soil. But these farmers mm. were just like, I don't know. We buy seeds, we throw it on the ground, we make sure there's water. And oh my gosh. Hopefully that's enough. <laughs> um, so things weren't ah. working out too well uh, coming out of wow. World War One and before the Great Depression. So like 1919, all the 20s uh, leading up to 29. Uh, but <laughs> now we're going to shift. So we've met one party, the uh, soldier settlers, and now we have on the screen an emu. Sweet angel. Little sweet angel. And let's go over some emu facts. Um, <laughs> so emus, I don't know if you knew this, Kelsey, uh, but mm, they're the second largest living bird and actually the largest oh. living bird in Australia. Um, oh. Australia, a little bit more. They're huh. around five feet tall. Uh, they can run at speeds over three uh, 30 miles per hour. So that's pretty... That I knew, yes. Pretty ding-dang fast. Um, yes. Their diet is primarily uh, insects, plants. They don't um, eat people, which is one of the <laughs> rare things being in Australia. You'd think everything mm-hmm. wants to kill you. These are one of the more docile mm. kind of uh, natural species of Australia. Uh, something I thought was cool was male emus are the caretakers. So they actually like incubate the eggs and for six months of their babies, their chick's life, the, mm. the males are the ones who take care of them while the females are off uh, doing their thing. And uh, one of the two animals that's on the Australian coat of arms. And I'm wondering if you might be able to guess the other one. A kangaroo? Possibly. Dang it. You got that so fast. I was going to say that or the Tasmanian devil. (laughs) I thought like you might be like, oh, koala. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Koala's a great one though. Yeah. All right. I was Um, immediately like kangaroo or Tasmanian devil. Nothing else. (laughs) One or the other. That is it. That's all it can be. I totally forgot about the angel babies that are koalas who are actually really mean, I guess. But Yeah. Yeah, they can be. I guess if you have a very like tricky brain yes correct i'm gonna do some story time so like i did mention uh, emus have been around on the continent and evolved on this continent um, of australia and so the uh, native indigenous peoples uh, actually have some like creation myths that are all about emus so i thought i would tell you one today while we are uh, mid story Uh, okay so long ago in the dreaming, and aside the dreaming or the dreamlands, the, the uh, indigenous people are kind of like uh, the before times, uh, before real time. This was like long, long time ago, in a galaxy <laughs> far, far away. Uh, okay. Long ago in the dreaming, there was a cat called Jotich who huh. was married to an emu called Wedge. Interesting. One day, Wardu, the wombat, paid a visit to Wedge while Joe Teach was out hunting. Wardu was secretly in love with Wedge, and she was tempted by his charms. At sundown, Wedge told Wardu to leave before Joe Teach returned, as he would kill them both in a jealous rage. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a cat. (laughs) Yeah. However, before Wardu left, he painted Wedge with a precious red ochre that was used for special ceremonies. Aww. 
When Jyotich returned, he asked Wedge why she was decorated with this precious ochre and who gave it to her. She told him she found it, but he knew she was lying as he had recognized Wardu's tracks leaving their camp. Uh... But Jyotich pretended to believe her and asked her to build a fire for the cold night ahead. When the fire was ablaze, he grabbed Wedge and threw her into the flames. Oh my god! With the strength of her powerful legs, she jumped so high into the sky, she never returned. Now, on dark nights, if you look up at the Milky Way, you can see her as the dark patch between the stars, which is known to the indigenous people as Wedgemoor. Oh, I see And so you can actually see uh, the red ochre around the emu on the left-hand side. And uh, mm-hmm. the little ostrich. It's almost like in cartoons when they like <laughs> fall through the scenes and there's just like the silhouette of them. Um, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Worth bringing up. So yeah. we have the emus and we have these people. Emus have been here uh, for just as long, if not longer, um, mm. than people have been in Australia or the lands that are now known as Australia. But we're going to talk about the Great Depression. Um, Oh, no. Uh, So, Great Depression, I'm not going to really go too deep into it. Really bad time in the late 20s and early 30s, up until basically the 1940s. In Australia, uh, they felt it much harder than even we did here in America. Uh, Like, their suicide Mm -hmm. rates were super elevated. Mm -hmm. Joblessness um, was... I think over 33%, uh, which was higher than it was in America at the time. Uh, They just Mm -hmm. were feeling it really bad. And uh, a lot of people who were feeling it worse were these um, soldier settlers uh, Mm. who were falling into increasing poverty. It didn't help that droughts were pretty common at this time as well. Mm. Wheat prices were falling. And of course, most of those farmers thought wheat was the easiest grain to grow. uh, So that's what they grew in that area of Australia. So after about a quarter of the 5,000 settler soldiers uh, walked away from their failing farms, uh, the government was like, oh, actually, hold up. Um, We're going to give you guys some subsidies. Uh, So you give us wheat and we'll buy it back at a higher price than you usually would. And so the soldier said, I was like, all right, fine. Uh, So they grew the wheat, they delivered it to the government, and the government decided, actually, we're not going to do that. Um, uh-uh. <laughs> uh, and they did that uh, twice. Uh, <laughs> first year, and then the second year. And then the farmers were like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Uh, if you don't pay us first, we're keeping the wheat, and we'll do with it what we want. So we have a powder keg. And right here on the screen, this is uh, a picture of mm. the Great Depression area. Uh, roundabouts uh, of Australian camps. Basically, they Mm -hmm. had tarp camps just like we had here. Uh, I would hate to think about being in the outback and Great Depression. uh, And literally all I can think about are like Tasmanian devils running rampant. And you're just like, like, what is that? Or snakes or how many other things can kill you in Australia? So many. Uh, so remember I talked about that drought yeah continued to be an issue 
on top of the Great Depression, on top of mm. their already existing trauma, uh, mm. both physical and emotional and mental. But the drought wasn't just affecting the people. It was affecting the local fauna as well. Mm. Uh, and typically, the emus would stick to certain areas and they would migrate during certain seasons. But in 1931... Uh, there had been a really high amount of emu births. And coupled with the drought that saw them mm. needing to find more land to uh, try to survive on, there was a herd of 20,000 emus <gasps> migrating further and further. Oh my gosh. Trying to find something. Uh, oh, babies. So mm. something that the government and the soldier settlers hadn't really properly invested in uh, was fencing? pretty decent fencing. Uh, they had like some fences, uh, but emus like five foot bird <laughs> are just gonna crash right through a wooden fence. Oh, and something man. emus love is a large plot of land to be able to run around, mm. uh, to sit where it's kind of like flat and be able to survey like areas, spot predators, uh, and you know something they can eat. Uh, mm. So enter farmland. Mm. recent farms from the soldier settlers uh emus crashed through the inadequate fencing <laughs> they would eat as many crops as possible during this time they'd also be like pooping defecating yeah on nearby crops which would then spoil the the crops that they didn't. Uh... and then after emus would move on to another farm because of the the holes that they left in the fences mm. uh, other pests like rabbits would come in um and Ooh decimate the rest so veterans the soldier uh settlers ran to the government uh to help and the government you know wanted to appear like hey we're actually going to help these soldiers this time like instead of the subsidy mm -hmm. stuff um mm -hmm. a new prime minister had been elected and so they I decided don't believe we're, it. <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna we're gonna help them uh, because of our BS, we're gonna do good things. Um, the veterans were also like, "Hey, we during the war, we saw a lot of like high-powered guns, like machine guns. Mm -hmm. and we're like, we could really use some of these uh, to uh, take back." They, the emus were, you know, just doing their best to survive, but the soldiers mm -hmm. are also trying to survive, and it's just like a mess. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to talk about the man with the mustache on the left-hand side, Sir George Pierce, uh, the Minister of Defense <laughs> for Australia. Before you do this, I have yes. to say, just the image of like 20,000 emus crashing through a fence. Imagine yeah. if you were just like sitting out there like, what the F am I going to do with all this wheat? And then suddenly like just this like massive, yeah. what do they call it? A gaggle? Uh, of emus, like uh, uh, twenty thousand emus just come crashing through your fence. Like I just, I wish I could have seen their faces. Uh, Kelsey, a group of yeah. emus is called a mob. Oh my god, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mob. Oh my god, a mob of a emus. Mob of emus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have uh, Sir George Pierce on the left hand side of the screen. Oh. Um, he decided. The best course of action like we can't obviously give machine guns to everyone <laughs> that wants one because that's obviously not smart um if this was the us though <laughs> if this was the us i mean everyone already has a machine gun yeah um so he decided he would give one machine gun 
to the most experienced uh, people in Australia. And we had a major Gwynedd Perv's win Aubrey Meredith. That is one person with far too many names. What was one of his names? Perv? (laughs) Pervs. Um, Oh. Gwynedd, G-Y-W-N-N-Y-D. Pervs, P-U-R-V-E-S. Win W Y N N apostrophe or dash Aubrey A U B R E Y last name Meredith M E R E D I T H. Uh, suffice it to say, I'm going to be calling him Meredith from now on. Okay. Um, and he was accompanied by a sergeant S McMurray and a gunner J O'Halloran. They would uh go with one machine gun and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. So they were also given a side quest to collect a hundred emu skins for the light horsemen to turn into hats. Um, oh, I have no. here a note, something in my notes. Uh, let me read here. Gross. I hate people. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Disgusting. Also, the machine gunners were going to be followed around by a press corps, as this was going to be viewed as an easy win uh, for the government. Like, hey, we helped these soldier settlers, and no. we're helping to keep people safe. And I wrote another note here. Don't count your emu eggs before they've hatched? Question mark. Mm. I'm not sure if that works. Uh, it so, does. I hope the emus just like kill everyone. Well, um, <laughs> I won't say that they kill everyone, uh, okay. but the it's going to okay. be, yeah. it turns okay. into Looney Tunes real quick. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> delayed by rains until. Uh, November 2nd, 1932, the soldiers arrived in Campion, uh, southwestern mm-hmm. Australia, uh, where they found a pack of 50 50 emus. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried a, to herd a mob. A mob, sorry. A, a mob yes. of 50 emus. Yes. Uh, they tried to herd the emus into small packs, like using trucks to make uh, shooting more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the emus didn't behave um, like other animals <laughs> do. Instead of like going into smaller groups and like following one leader mm. kind of thing, they all They're just not sheep. Of, they went. They just were like scatter, <laughs> and they all like ran in different directions. Uh, so at the <laughs> end of the amazing. first, at the end of the first battle of the Great Emu War, zero emus killed. Amazing. They tried again the next day. Mm. Same problem. Uh, this time they did get fifteen emus. No. Uh, out of twenty thousand. I know. On 11, uh, sorry, on November 4th, uh, they decided they're going to switch up tactics um, as it wasn't really going the way they expected it to. (laughs) They set up an ambush early morning at a dam Mm -hmm. nearby. Uh, They waited until the emus got so close they could see the brown of their eyes, (laughs) is how it was reported. And they began shooting. Um, Mm -hmm. After 12 emus were hit, Mm um and went down the machine gun stalled dead be used and then after this happened Mm -hmm. the rest of the emus present scattered so at this point we're at 27 out of 20,000 emus dead too many too many agreed the next few days proved to be like more the same one huge Mm -hmm. fail came when meredith decided to mount the gun on the back of a truck and chased down uh-huh. the emus and the emus could run faster than the trucks <laughs> and Second. the roads 
were so uneven and uh, bouncy uh, that shots couldn't. Oh my gosh! He like even possibly landed. At, so no deaths for an emu that day. Go hmm. TPU. At one point, the local farmers decided to use a truck to hit an emu straight on. Um, they did kill the emu, but mm-hmm. they got stuck in the wheels, which made the truck oh. swerve and crash into a nearby wheat field through that fencing. So now the animals could get through into that field and the rabbits oh would fall. Oh my god. Uh, so karma. Um, karma. And like, when are some of these guys going to die? <laughs> Soon? Uh no. So uh, yeah. So by uh November eighth, twenty five hundred rounds out of the ten thousand, so a quarter of the rounds had been used. And uh the only I saw estimates all over the place. Uh mm-hmm. from like fifty to four hundred, but mm-hmm. the four hundred number was by Meredith. So uh mm-hmm. most people have like maybe two hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, out of 20,000 still more than I like um, but yeah. emus are still winning yeah. quite a bit um, the soldiers um, that went down with the machine gun Meredith's men uh, started yeah. to become the laughing stock in the house of Representative uh, with some calls for medals to be struck for this war but that they should all go to the emus uh, <laughs> because they they're doing way better um, the very next day, November 9th, the government ordered Pierce, the defense minister, to have Meredith and his men withdraw. Mm. Uh, that didn't last terribly long. Uh, here's a picture of that, the dam, uh, where they mm. were trying to uh, ambush them. And this was actually after the uh, machine gun failed. <laughs> so there was like... Defeated. Suckers. Defeated. Um, Babies. So... That wasn't the end of it, though. (laughs) Less than a week later, uh, Mm -hmm. November 12th, more calls came in from the settler soldiers, the farmers. And even with the failures up until this point, the Australian government decided, you know what, let's try again. (laughs) They uh, had Pierce uh, lend the machine gun to Western Australia government. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a smaller section there and then western australia is like okay we're gonna hire the most experienced machine gunners and who are the most experienced machine gunners but meredith mcmurray and o'halloran again oh Uh, my god and uh, they tried more and more tactics over the next month Mm. with mostly all of them being failures (laughs) um one time, accidentally, they caused a large hole in rabbit-proof fencing around a large <laughs> swath of land, which only made the problem way worse uh, for the farmers. By the time Meredith and his men were recalled again um, on December 10th, so less than a month, 9,860 rounds out of the 10,000 had been fired, with a total count of emus killed. Some people have it pretty low. Others have it pretty high. Like Meredith is like, we killed at least 2,000 of them. Oh, um, but it's more like under 1,000, like 986 mm. is more likely what that is. Um, mm. Although Meredith would go on to claim, yeah, but at least 2,500 emus had died due to the wounds they sustained. Well, uh, what they didn't know at the time was that emus have like much thicker skin. 
mm. uh, than humans do. So the bullets would enter and they just wouldn't take them down because it just mm. would just either like bounce off or just like get in there and then it would be dislodged. Just hang out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh. um, so um, even though that 2,500 emus had died due to wounds uh, sustained, mm. that was not backed up by any official accounts. I couldn't find anything mm. that proved that for sure. Pierce, who had been the Minister of Defense, uh, was being called the Minister for the Emu War as a joke by all of his people. Um, <laughs> back to the farmers, after Meredith and his men had been recalled, uh, the Australian government then sent bills to the farmers, <laughs> wanting them to pay for the assistance that they gave. Oh, my God. And the farmers were like, screw you. Um, actually, we're going to bill you for all the food and the lodging that uh, we gave to Meredith and his men um, oh and the press corps and everything. Uh, what ended up happening is they did move to a bounty system where farmers were responsible for taking care. Because mm -hmm. at this point, it's also, I should mention, emus were classified as pests. Uh, P -E -S -T -S. Um, it, that That's was so changed, unfortunately, pretty late in the 20th century. Um, I think 1960s, mm. uh, they were put back on, you know, don't kill them. Yeah. Around the same time, the government finally was like, let's put in adequate fencing. And this was, again, like yes, the 1950s. It took until like the 1950s, oh, 1960s God. for them to be like, we should probably do this. Uh, so majority of the farmers, dead and gone. Uh, not because of the emus, but because... <laughs> sadly. Sadly. Um, I mean, uh, maybe partially, be like, indirectly, because... Maybe indirectly. For them. Yeah. yeah. But some of the farmers who had, like, persisted through, and once the fencing mm -hmm. came up, uh, they were able to kind of thrive and um, find a more respectful kind of way mm -hmm. forward, working with emus and any other uh, animals that were encroaching on the land that they had mm. uh, i i started this being like yeah like go team emu and i'm still go team emu but it is also terrible to think about like all the crap these soldiers had been through and yes they mm. shouldn't have gone about by like trying to kill these emus mm. um the government should have stepped up and been like buy some of this land we're gonna fence everything around it so no pests yeah. can come to it uh, so really, it's all around. It's just failures on the government. Um, yeah, and I just feel like, given our last one of our last episodes, they should have just unionized. <laughs> yeah, honestly, absolutely. Uh, yeah. They should you know, let's go back in time and have them listen. Yeah, to that episode. Let's um, do that. Maybe they'll they'll change their minds, and <laughs> and I can go back and be like, you don't need a machine gun. Here's no, nope. here's, here's the some union. Um, decent fencing. Yeah, and, and here's um, some union pamphlets. Here's some union pamphlets. Let's <laughs> get you uh, some rights. <laughs> and wow. we'll have the government listen to you. Um, oh, so, man. yeah, that is my my story. And um, I did sad. have on this screen, that's the last one. You're right, kangaroo. Kangaroo. Um, so emus now are, they're not endangered at all. They're They're perfectly fine. And thankfully, like I mentioned, they're no longer classified as um, mm, pests okay. in mm. Australia. And I did also find 
um, I tried to find like documentation on it, but there were more just mm-hmm. like stories um, that there were a good amount of Australians at the time that are like, we shouldn't be killing these emus. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's better ways around this. Uh, so mm-hmm. not everyone in Australia is like, let's kill them. Um, a good mm-hmm. amount we're trying to find reasonable ways around this. Uh, so I don't want to end the story with everyone thinking that Australia uh, <laughs> there's so there's something about an emu's face that is just like so soulful and yeah, i have to go back to the emu facts one uh, it makes me happy it's just so soulful and just like like how like sweet angel baby um another thing for you to follow yes. tonight on instagram is or i think they have a tiktok too but knuckle bump farms um, oh, is that the one where there's Emmanuel? The yeah, Emmanuel. <laughs> yeah, an emu or an ostrich? He's an emu. Okay. Um, and she has on her farm several emus. So, um, she just raised two other ones from babies, and now they're much bigger. But and I know that like bird flu had ripped through her yeah. area last year, and and Emmanuel almost died. Mm-hmm. But she like nursed him back to health, and he's still like got some funky stuff but man that emu came back they're hearty um but he is just such a sweet little angel and i just love watching him and the other emus are so funny too um they're just so goofy and just like their little faces are so funny so uh that's a a fun instagram to watch just to like see the the it's a sanctuary essentially um, and they take in animals many that are you know ill or whatever but um it's just so so cute so i love it and i hate animal cruelty it just breaks my heart i like stare i'm staring at my poopy cat the the one with the poop problems and i'm just like sweet baby if there was a mob of you i don't know what we do but (laughs) that would be scary yeah actually it would be terrifying i always think about what if silly was like 10 times her size or even just like five times her size she would kill yeah. me 100% she would try to kill me yeah, she's got some good hunter instincts she's she's a little scary like mm. I don't know I don't know there's something up with her but a little my little freak but anyway um <laughs> this was wild <laughs> it was uh it was yeah uh I had heard that the Australians had lost a war to emus a few years ago <laughs> and like, I was like uh... <laughs> apparently oh, there was going to be a movie made with John Cleese in it of uh, Monty Python and I was like what the hell is happening oh man uh, I don't know if that's still on or not um, but very interesting very different very yeah okay WTF mm-hmm. I mean both of these were about animals really at the center of it uh, which is fascinating um i was thinking in my head the whole time like the complete opposite of emu war is hobby horse enthusiasm enthusiasm yeah. <laughs> like right. they're very 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 interesting it's just very interesting <laughs> i was it's, like what's uh... the antithesis of emu war hobby horse, <laughs> hobby horse. <laughs> yes but now you and your lovely wife aka one of my besties um have a lot of hobby horsing and knuckle bump farming to do. Yeah, we're going to fall so, down that rabbit hole. Yes, please do. And please uh, tell me how it goes. 
Absolutely. I, I would ask that you Google image search the Great Emu War of 1932. Oh, yeah. You're going to see oh, some yeah. wonderful photoshops of ostriches and like soldier uniforms and like. Oh my gosh. I won't see the sad ones though, right? I won't see the cruelty ones, will I? Uh, you might. I may um, have so, to make my lovely husband look first. Yeah. Or do like minus dead or something like that. In Google. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alive emu. Yeah. Emu propaganda. War propaganda. Emu war <laughs> propaganda. Is that, is that the name of the... I think we just titled the episode. Uh, or a mob of emus. Something like that. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is such a joy, Mike. As always. <laughs> I just like... I... The world is so weird. Is <laughs> There's so no... Boring endless amount of of weird and okwtf yeah, to be this honest. Is, we could be doing this forever and i'll still be like Truly. what what is happening <laughs> what are you talking about yeah well i mean i hope people will submit stories yes they should is there uh, something that you know about that like out there people are saying that you're like, I want to know more about this. I haven't been able to fall down the hole. Submit like ideas for stories or weird things yeah. that have happened to you. Where can they do that, Mike? Uh, they can do that by going to uh, okwtfpodcast.com. Is it okwtfpodcast.com or just mm-hmm. okwtfpodcast.com? Yeah. Yeah, it's right on the screen here too. Um, www.okwtfpodcast.com. Uh, they can mm-hmm. also send us an email um yeah hello at okwtfpodcast.com yes do it you have nothing to lose the worst thing is that we won't read it i mean you know yeah and we're gonna um because we're we're excitable people Um, we're gonna find a way if you prefer to do it on socials you can find us on the majority Mm -hmm. of them at at okwtfpodcast um send us stuff there if you have your own hobby horse uh, oh my gosh send us photos family heirloom <laughs> hobby horse we want to see this uh send if you know more random emu facts send mm-hmm. it i, I want to know more about them they're so cute yes they are they really do have very i, I just I keep looking at it oh my god so soulful sweet babies yeah sweet babies. never a past no. yeah hit us up y'all And we'll catch you next time. (laughs) Thanks for getting weird with us. Submit your own OKWTF stories for us to share by visiting www.okwtfpodcast.com. And stay in touch on all the social platforms at OKWTF Podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to OKWTF on your streaming service of choice. Thank you so much to Out of Flux and Ayal Talmudi for the use of their song, Da Boom Jiggle. And thank you to Bilal Sarwar for their incredible cover art. Until next time. <laughs>